Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Valerie Patrick. Valerie is president of Fulcrum Connection. She's a facilitator, leadership trainer, and professional speaker. She's also a PhD chemical engineer with 25 years of corporate experience leading technical and strategic initiatives. Before we get started, I'm excited to share an opportunity with you, the $1,000 marketing plan. Would it be a relief to bring in enough clients to make your big vision possible and not feel icky about your marketing? For just $1,000, you'll receive a customized plan for your business that focuses on your impact and clearly maps out your next steps for marketing your most valuable offering. Be in alignment with what you value and the change you want to make in the world. Go to the $1,000marketingplan.com for more information. Click on any button to get started. Don't forget the whole name, the 1000indigitsmarketingplan.com. Click on any button to get your customized marketing plan underway. The link is also in the show notes. Welcome to the podcast, Valerie. It's great to have you here. Ursula, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, I really wanted to have this conversation with you because no one has impact alone. Uh, so teams play a big role in a growing company's impact. And uh, yes. so I'm really excited to explore this with you in more depth. And uh, as we were talking about before the interview began, you and I have uh, some things in common. We both have a science background. We've worked in corporate in the pharmaceutical industry and um, team development skills. Uh, people perceive scientists as not being so good at that. So what do you think, what is it about your, your science and corporate background that you think is beneficial in looking at teams? Well, I do think there is some research to suggest that technical professionals can struggle with uh, teamwork. Mm. I recall a study that looked at how people scored on the autism spectrum quotient. Uh -huh. And they looked at people who were technical professional professionals versus non-technical professionals. And on average, technical professionals did score higher, which oh, really? means, yeah, which that means before. that uh, technical professionals tend to have poor social skills on average, hmm. tend to have poor oral communication skills, tend to be more detail oriented. And I think there's two other dimensions that the uh, autism spectrum quotient measures. Uh -huh. So it can be a challenge. I think in my case, I grew up in a big family. I have three brothers. So mm -hmm. I think that went a long way in helping me learn how to work with others. Sure. And um, you also in a technical profession, at least for me, you have to work in lab groups and in teams. Yeah. Uh, when you go, when you get your degree, uh, we, we had to do a senior design project in mm. chemical engineering. So you had to figure out how to work with these, you know, other students. So you are put in situations where you have to figure it out. And, but one of the things I think that really helps for a technical professional 
is in a lot of cases, we learn how to do what's called troubleshooting. Hmm, sure. So that's about, okay, you have a problem or, you know, first recognizing the symptoms of the problem, what's going on, and then trying to troubleshoot what is at the source of that. And then once you figure out the source of the problem, then the ways to address that problem present themselves. And I think this works very well when it comes to teamwork, because a team is essentially a complex adaptive system, which is uh, a, a long way to say things just evolve and that unpredictable things can evolve. So when you right. put a group of people together, you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. So a lot of different things can be at play. There could be a lot of different sources when things go wrong. And so I think technical people are particularly equipped for that because that kind of mindset, I think, really helps. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I would have to agree. I think that troubleshooting approach can be really valuable in any kind of, of scenario. So, um, yeah, I know that comes out in your uh, quite a bit in your book. You talk about uh, your book is when bad t- teams happen to good people, and uh, so it's uh, it's an approach that I know you you put to use. There's, I mean, we've just moved through a whole lot of disruption because of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. there's been a lot of change required on the part of of companies and therefore teams. And um, how how has that disruption affected teams in your experience? Yeah, so I've talked to a few people about this, and I think one of the things that has happened is that uh, there's been some confusion about teams and meetings because because of the pandemic, a lot of work has gone virtual. Mm -hmm. And so just regular communications now have to be virtual. And I think there's also been some pressure or some feeling by managers that they need to see their people more since they're not seeing them in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so this has caused uh, some of that Uh Zoom fatigue that you hear about. Right. More meetings. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. More meetings and more meetings aren't necessarily a good thing Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, a meeting is only as good as the planning and the objectives. And so when you have a, what's great about a team and team meetings is a well-constructed team has goals, has objectives, has a direction, has what they're trying to achieve. Mm. So that allows you to make the meetings intentional and have results. When you have these meetings, just because people aren't seeing you and they just want to know what's going on, that's not always a good use of people's time. So that's a potential um, downside of what's been happening with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, there's a number of things that you mentioned that I really want to get into, but just sticking with the the disruption aspect, how can teams manage disruption and change well? Like how, when stress and conflict come up in teams, what are some ways that you can be prepared and, and really manage those things better? So I think the really important thing when it comes to disruption in a team is you want to manage that disruption in a way that keeps people engaged. There was research done by Dr. Anita Woolley from Carnegie Mellon University. She studies collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. And what she found was that uh, team performance correlates with the degree of equal participation. So that's really important to manage disruption without killing that equal participation. So that means you have to pay attention to the emotions in the room. 
you know, if there's some strong negative emotions going on, one of the first things, first things you want to do is dissipate that negative emotion because our brain is wired. When we experience a strong negative emotion, that's a signal, get away from the source of that negative right. emotion, withdraw. Right. And that's mm-hmm. the opposite of what you want to do in a team. So one of the first things you need to do is if there is negative emotion, dissipate it. You can call for a break. Uh, you can uh, put on a fin- funny video to lighten the mood. Mm. You can even do um, meditation. Um, I know that there are many companies that are practicing that to help right. dissipate that negative emotion. I'm so I think su- I'm a little surprised that you you say dissipate it rather than um, come at it more directly. Um, is there a, is there a place for that too? Oh, absolutely. So the reason I say dissipate the negative emotion first is because when your negative emotion gets to a certain level, it actually takes over your ability to think because ah, right. you get that amygdala hijack going on, right? So mm-hmm. your brain kind of runs with it. So that's why you first want to dissipate it. So you get that thinking capacity back. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you want to take away the source of the conflict or the disagreement, but you want to have people able to think there's been some really great research done on conflict. Um, and it's another researcher at Carnegie Mellon university. And I can see her face, but her name is escaping me right now. Maybe it'll come back to me later. Uh, she has found that, you know, you conflict can take one of two paths. It can be productive or non-productive. And we've seen examples of both, right? So yeah. when you have non-productive conflict, you get into what uh, this researcher calls a escalatory conflict spiral. So mm. that means emotions get high and they keep getting high and people in the conflict escalates and nothing productive comes out of it. Right. You want conflict to be productive, which is a de-escalatory conflict spiral. Mm. So that's a case where, you know, it's direct to, to your point, you're direct about what the conflict is about but you have low emotional intensity because Ah. if that emotional intensity gets too high, then the thinking stops and you get into that escalatory conflict spiral, which you don't want. So you do want that directness because there is such a thing as passive aggressiveness, which doesn't help anyone (laughs) when you're not being direct. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, yeah, it's a good way to think about it. I mean, when you think about even uh, I'm just reading something recently about by Peter Levine around the, management of trauma responses and that de-escalation. I mean, perhaps that's, that's not directly applicable here, but that de-escalation is a big part of it is being able to come to a point where there's some room to manage it as opposed to being flooded by the emotion. Absolutely. Yes. I think it's, I think that's a great example. Mm. Well, um, one of the things that you mentioned in your book and you, you've touched on already is having a sense of purpose. And I mean, I look at impact as uh, being guided by that sense of purpose. So having a sense of what's the impact you want to have and therefore acting out of that. And I mean, now companies often have a sense of purpose. There's the whole work around the big why and, um, do you think the teams need to operate with their own sense of purpose or is it better to kind of have that, that high level company sense of purpose being your, your guide for how things operate? Well, in my experience, 
purpose on a team is a great way to amp up the engagement of team members and the performance of that team. Hmm. So I do think teams that make that extra effort to have purpose, to show that why will in the end have higher performance because they'll have higher buy-in and engagement. And I think that level of purpose can also happen at the individual level. Mm. I think team members who are in tune with how they want to make a difference with their purposes, and it's a journey, right? You and I both know uh, what we might've thought our purpose was early on in our career sort of evolved, you know, as we went later on in our career, Mm -hmm. but, you know, team members who are in tune with what their purpose is, I think can engage more fully and more quickly than those who aren't because they can find those connections between their purpose and what the team is trying to do. And that's a great source of intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you're talking about layers of, of uh, clarity about a sense of purpose. So it's the companies, it's the teams, it's the individuals. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's like a, almost like a, a purpose hierarchy, if you will. Uh, I think uh, an organization's purpose is probably going to be a little more abstract, right? Mm-hmm. A team purpose is going to be some subset of that. And uh, your individual purpose is very specific to you and who you are. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So how do you recommend approaching that in a team? Is that something that you would do early on in the team's formation? I, I don't know if you're aware of this approach to team development, there's norm or forming, norming, storming, and I can't remember the last performing, one. performing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's the important one. Um, yeah. So in the forming stage, is it, uh, do you think that's a good point at which to really have a very out there, straightforward conversation about well, what's the point of this team? What are we going to, what, what, why are we here and why are we doing this? Well, my choice would be uh, to do it in before the team has its first meeting. Ah, okay. So, you know, if I got to choose, I mean, if I was thrown into a team, then I would do it as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, if you can do it before the team meets, then uh, you can engage people quickly. Now, you might tweak it a little bit based on team input. A great team leader does that, right? They come, they come in with their plan or they plan, put it, put it mm-hmm. that way. They prepare for that meeting. They plan, they come to the meeting. And then if team members shoot holes in everything, well, that team leader has to be flexible enough to, to incorporate the input that is valuable and helpful Mm-hmm. to not use the input that's not helpful and, and respond appropriately to that and, and make the adjustments. So, you know, they may come in with a certain purpose and then realize, oh, that's a little off base based on the team input. And that's great, you know, because then there's even more buy-in. Hmm. Yeah. Is that something that you think you can even introduce by email in advance of the first meeting? Sort of, here's how I see the purpose of of our team and, and get people's input, or do you recommend having that kind of dialogue in person? I think, I think both can work. Hmm. I think it's, I think you want to have that purpose in the context of the uh, overall objective for the team and the goals of the team. So you, you want to make sure people see that connection. Um, and I think that that can be done over email. Um, 
I would personally, if it's a really important team effort, I would try to do it either one-on-one through phone calls if it needs to be virtual right? or, um, you know, in person, if you can, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. uh, I think this is, this is heavy stuff and you don't want misinterpretation and you don't want, you know, someone to just ha- react really badly to it. Mm-hmm. So you can manage that better if you're in that phone call or in that meeting sure. than if it's an email. So the danger, the risk you have with just with doing the email is misinterpretation. Right. So that's, yeah, that's a risk. Yeah. It's a chronic problem with email is that there it's so easy to misunderstand and then you can go down a, a not very productive road until there's clarity. So it's good to either be on the phone or zoom or in person, you can read what's happening for the other person a little bit. Absolutely. And then you can have that conversation to, to, uh, to um, address the misunderstanding. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you've touched on leadership a few times. So I'm, I'm, let's talk a little bit about the role of the team leader. And what do you see as the difference between a manager and a leader? I mean, a lot's been written about this, but um, a lot of work has been done in that realm. And do you think both skills are needed? I mean, let's, let's, let's talk first about what's the difference between the two. Yes, I do think both skills are, are needed. So uh, a leader is typically looked at as the person who's setting, who has the vision, right? Who has the vision of how things can be better, of what a better future looks like. And uh, so sets that direction um, and then enlists other people to go with them on that journey to achieve that, that goal. Whereas the managers is typically, that's the person who gets it done. They're given the direction by the leader. They're the ones who figure out how to achieve the results, how to get it done. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, for team leaders, they have to have both skills. Mm -hmm. They have to have that results orientation, how to get the results, which is more usually more attributed to managers. And they also have to have that vision. They're the ones setting the direction and bringing people along. So they they really need to have both of those skill sets. But I would even add a third skill set that mm. distinguishes the the most effective team leaders uh, from less effective team leaders, and that's the whole skill set around facilitation, which okay. is a focus on the pro the team process, how mm-hmm. to actually. Uh, how to work in a group, keeping everyone participating and being able to use the team time productively and actually achieve things during that team time. Yeah, it's an important point, I think, because leadership is so often focused on uh, more abstract qualities and that ability to move a process along and and uh, keep keep things kind of within a, a structure that's going to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish is, is really important. Um, you talk in the book about um, six team leader mindsets. And uh, could you talk a little bit about those and why you think that's so important for team leaders to have? Uh, yeah. So I talk about um, six team leader mindsets and um Mindsets, I think, in general are important to have because 
mindsets are really what inform our thoughts and our behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the leader, intentional or not, right, can say things and do things that either really engage people and get the team members behind them or turn them off yeah. and, and disengage them. So by having the right mindsets, that helps you, that gives you a head start in terms of being able to engage team members. And I, I don't remember all the mindsets off the top of my head, but one that, that always uh, stands out for me is the one, I think it is from uh, President Eisenhower, who said, uh, plans are nothing, planning is everything. Right, yeah. And that is just so important for the team leader because often a team leader feels like they have to get it all right. People are following them. They don't want to mess things up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise they look weak or they look like they don't know what they're doing. But the reality is, why do you have a team, right? So you do want to get out there. You want to plan for meetings. You want to plan for where the team's going, but you have this group of diverse people to help you figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. So you, you come in with an idea that because from the planning, right. But mm-hmm. you have to be willing to walk away from your plan and be flexible and adapt that plan based on the input from the team. So for me, that's a really important, uh, team leader mindset. Yeah, I really agree. I, I think that now, um, and it's also the ability to adapt to changing situations, which is happening all the time. And so sticking rigidly to a plan is not very helpful. I I love that quote. I often use it because people kind of enter into business feeling like, well, I have to have a plan. I have to have a business plan. And they go to elaborate lengths, which it does serve a purpose. uh, For entrepreneurs, it can uh, be a a vehicle for getting funding or uh, especially in a a banking, traditional banking setting. But as far as really sticking to it, as soon as you start taking action, the landscape shifts and you have to be able to adjust to that or you're Absolutely. never going to. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the the six team leader mindsets that you talk about in the book was really intrigued me. And I'd love to, to talk about that a little more. Okay. It's use difference causing dislike to fuel curiosity for skills to like. And that one surprised me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, oftentimes when, uh, so this gets to a little bit about conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So when something comes, you're in a meeting as a leader and a team member says something that really puts you off, Mm -hmm. right? That you can either get mad, right? Which may not lead to a productive result. Uh, you can decide you don't like that person for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, a smart team leader will realize that um, the difference of opinion is actually an opportunity to learn something that could be beneficial to you, could be beneficial to the team. Mm-hmm. Now, so that's where the curiosity comes in, right? So if you can turn that that um, gut reaction to, either get defensive or just decide, you know, you don't like this person, they're, they're being a troublemaker. If you can turn that into curiosity about, well, what's behind what they're saying? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, is there something there in terms of some expertise or experience they have that's unique to this situation that is we need to take into account? Or are they finding an aspect of this goal or this action or this decision that we really need to take into account? I mean, the research around um, teams and diversity of perspective and, and visible diversity shows that uh, diverse teams tend to make better decisions than more homogeneous teams, but that only happens if they're inclusive of those different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And you can only be inclusive of those different perspectives if you get curious. Right. Yeah. If you want to hear more about it, you want to explore it further and, you know, ask the person, what does that mean to you in terms of what we're doing here? All of those kinds of questions can be really valuable in bringing out that different perspective. Yeah, Amy Edmondson, who does research in teaming, which is uh, you know spontaneous teams that form, mm-hmm. talks about curiosity of of what another person can bring to a situation as part of building psychological safety. Yeah. So when you know, even if someone brings up something, maybe in not the most you know politically correct way, if you can use curiosity, that can build that, that psychological safety for that person to get more engaged. So mm-hmm. I think it's a very powerful uh, mindset. Yeah. Well, that relates to the whole area of, of people having social needs and how those need to be addressed in a team. So you, you talk about three universal social needs being the need for inclusion and respect, the need for control, and the need for shared and accurate understanding of what's going on. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. First, I want to share an offer with you, the $1,000 marketing plan. If your body tightens up just thinking about marketing, or if you're not sure what to do next to bring in a steady stream of business, then consider the $1,000 marketing plan. This plan, customized for your business, will center your marketing around the most important thing for your business, your impact. For an investment of $1,000, you'll have a plan that clearly maps out what to do for the next 6 to 12 months to market your best offering and bring in the income you want. Be in alignment with what you value and the change you want to make in the world. Go to the1000marketingplan.com and don't forget the whole name, the1000inddigitsmarketingplan.com for more information. Click on any button to get started. The link is also in the show notes. What's the role of the team leader in helping to address people's social needs? Well, uh, that that comes from the research of Dr. Vanessa Druscat. And one of the things that she talks about as a way to help address those universal social needs is to establish norms of behavior that will address those needs. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that the team leader can do as part of planning, you know, into that first meeting is they can come up with a draft list of norms that will help the team address those needs. Hmm. Yeah. When I've done facilitation in team settings, it's it's always a fruitful conversation talking about what's important to team members in terms of need, in terms of norms and how do you want behavior in the team to unfold? And even something as simple as, do I get to check my uh, phone for emails? Is that, you know, it's seemingly straightforward thing can get into a really good discussion. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I say no. <laughs> Set up breaks I'm with you for that. that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was in a I was facilitating a, a team meeting, um, and two of the members were millennials, and they were convinced that they could pay absolute attention to what was going on in the room and check their emails and text their team at the same time. And and I'm thinking, well, I, I know the research is no one can multitask, no matter how much we think we can. And you're, when your attention's divided, it takes you a long time to come back, all of those things. So um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, the neuroscience around that is, um, the, the whole idea of multitasking, if it's using the same part of the brain, mm-hmm. you can't multitask. Right. And so the, the language area of the brain, the language area of the brain, if you're engaging language, so texting, reading, trying to listen, that all uses the same part of the brain mm-hmm. and you cannot do three, three things at once using the same part of the brain. So you have to go in and out quickly, you know, between those things. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's by definition distracted. And I think a lot of another thing that's not understood by people who um, think they can do this is the research also shows that the more you supposedly multitask, which really is switching quickly between tasks using the same part of the brain, Mm. the less you, you get worse at um, being able to switch your attention. So your ability to switch attention slows down. So the more you think you're doing a really good job, keeping all these balls in the air, you're actually going to get worse at that over time because your ability to switch attention from one thing to the other, that's using that same part of the brain actually gets worse over time. Related to this kind of whole situation of, of, um, um, social needs is, is the team climate. And that's something you talk about uh, quite a bit in the book. And what, what does that even, what does that mean? Team climate? Yeah. So team climate, I I think I use the analogy of, uh, of a room in there, right? So, you know, when you walk into a room, you're going to either find it inviting and want to go in and sit down and get comfortable or you're not going to find it inviting and you're going to kind of, you're not quite sure what to do. Maybe it's got some weird chairs in it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think the same can be said for a team. You know, you get with a group of people. I think you've probably seen this. Um, you've been on a team and uh, for some reason, someone can no longer participate. Maybe they've left the company and you get a new team member. And all of a sudden things feel different in the team. It's, it's, you know, something's off or something's different. And when you put a group of people together, it just creates an environment based on the people who are participating. You know, we all bring in our own accumulated life experiences, particularly team experiences. So we all come in with a certain um, way that we're viewing this, this team and, you know, how we're going to behave And until those norms are established and until uh, you get working for a while, um, you know, that's what's going to kind of uh, create the team climate. And there's been there's been quite a bit of research on how climate impacts the ability to be creative and innovative. Uh, One of the first people to do a lot of research in this area was Dr. Teresa Amabile, uh, who wrote Creativity and Context, like back in the 1980s, I think I'm dating myself. Um, 
but it's a wonderful book and it talks about how important climate is to the ability for people to be creative and innovative. And of course you want teams to be creative and innovative. So it's a good thing to pay attention to the climate of the team and to regularly take stock in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an abstract thing. It's, you really can't measure it. Um, I, I think I recommend in the book, the best way to take stock in it is to do some kind of survey of how people feel, you know, mm-hmm. how are they, uh, are they able to contribute? Um, I think psychological safety is a part of climate. Sure. So, um, but yeah, it's a really important factor in terms of the ability of that team to perform. Hmm. So how can team leaders positively influence the team climate? Ah, mindsets. (laughs) (laughs) If they can practice those six mindsets, that will go a long way to uh, establishing a good climate because, Hmm. you know, the leader does have a disproportionate effect impact on the climate. Now, of course, the climate is the combined contribution of the behaviors of all the team members, but the team leader can really help to get the climate off to a good start uh, by practicing those mindsets. Yeah. Well, and and I'm just reading from your book here, some of those mindsets are share the floor, um, start with purpose and trust, when wrong, don't stay there long. I like that one. And the one that you talked about, um, we've talked about already is about a plan, uh, knowing when to stick with it and knowing when to uh, abandon it. And um, praising the working parts and not the smarts. I really like that one. Um, yeah, that it, speaks to a growth mindset. Yeah. So um, that, uh, you know, it's found that if you uh, praise someone for, you know, being smart or being creative that tends to promote a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if you praise them for their effort, for their work, um, that tends to promote the growth mindset and growth mindset, um, has been tied to the ability to perform, uh, at higher levels than, uh, when you have a fixed mindset mm-hmm. yeah. So the fixed mindset you feel like you have something to lose. So you tend to not take as much risk. Right. Uh, you tend to back off of challenges because you don't want to look bad. Uh, whereas the growth mindset is I can do this, we put enough work in, we can figure this out. So right. that's why it so, leads to higher performance. Yeah. So more creativity and innovation as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of the things you talked about in that in the around team climate is using competition to drive performance. And mm-hmm. I've had a, a kind of fractious relationship with that kind of approach. I've been on teams where <clears throat> early in my career where competition was fostered and not in a good way. And so I've tended to take the view that, you know, all competition within teams is, not a good thing. I tend to look at it more as collaboration is a better approach, but you see some positives in fostering competition. Yeah, this reminds me of a story. So um, my husband and I, we were both working for the same company and they had a uh, photo competition and we both decided that we were going to um, participate in the photo competition. Of course, it it turned into a really big competition between uh, him and me. And uh, I approached the competition as, you know, I, I've always liked art uh, and I've liked, you know, art teaches you about um, light and dark and composition. And it's something I've really enjoyed. And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity for me to practice those skills I really like and um, 
So, you know, I was focused on the things that I could uh, do, do well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just used a simple point and shoot camera at the time. This was well before cell phones, uh, but it was a point and shoot, you know, no fancy filters right. or anything. And I was with a friend of mine. We were doing a drive up the California coast along Big Sur and there was a spectacular sunset. And I'm like, stop the car. And we ran out and I, I just took a couple <laughs> pictures, you know, and that was the one that I ended up submitting for the photo contest. Hmm. Well, my husband was all about winning. <laughs> That's all he cared about was winning. And he uh, had a fancy Pentax camera and all these fancy filters. And he was, you know, doing whatever he thought he needed to do to win and all these right. filters and, you know, put his picture in. Well, as you probably surmised, um, I won second place in the photo contest <laughs> and I, you know, I, my picture was framed and I got this big, you know, um, uh, plaque and my husband just got a thanks for participating ribbon. Oh no. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so, and that was like kind of a, um, that's a good lesson for competition. So it's, uh, there's been research done to show that your mindset of competition is what's really important in terms of results. So your performance is more likely to be better when you're competing, when your mindset is focused on the things that you can do well. Hmm. But if your mindset going into competing is, um, you know, you're, you're, it's more about, uh, winning which means on the flip side, you're concerned about losing, right? Um, Your performance is going to tend to be poorer. So Mm -hmm. in teams, if you are going to use competition as a tool, and I I think I give a a couple of of ways to do this, the leader really needs to be focused on um, what what is it that we can do well? What is it that we can really bring to this in order for that to lead to good results? Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Well, my my last question before we get to the rapid round is really uh, unproductive meetings are they can become something people dread. And yes, you talk about very consciously and intentionally designing a meeting so it's effective. So please share some things that people can keep in mind when they're planning a meeting that they can that they can actually design it so that it's not a waste of people's time. Yeah. So I think it, you know, it starts with um, considering what success looks like. What I like to do when I, when I work with people is say, okay, let's say the meeting has happened already and you're thrilled. Why, why are you so happy? What Mm -hmm. was it that was accomplished that made you so happy? And that helps get you in the mindset of what, you really need to accomplish in that meeting. And that's where you want to start. What do you really need to accomplish? So once you've figured that out, then you can reverse engineer what the design of that meeting needs to be. Hmm. And there's some things you can step through, you know, depending on there's different types of outcomes, right? Your outcome might be, you need to solve a particular problem. So in that case, you're going to need to do some brainstorming as part of your design of that meeting. Or the outcome might be, you know, at this stage, we just need to learn something. So that's going to lead to a a different type of design. So, um, but I think the most important thing is really thinking about what is it that this group of people 
needs to achieve that's going to move us forward and, and make you happy, move you towards something, someplace you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. And then once you figure that out, then, like I said, you can reverse engineer the design that's needed. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's like setting an intention for here's how I want the out. This is, here's what I want the outcome to look like. And therefore, how do I get to that point? Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great mm-hmm. way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I always end these interviews with uh, three questions about impact. Are you game? I'm game. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. The first question in the rapid round is what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, an African proverb uh, that goes something like, uh, if you want to go fast, then go alone. But if you want to go far, then go with others. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, I grew up the I grew up with uh, three other um, siblings, and so I tend to be independent. I'm, I'm actually the oldest, mm-hmm. and that sense of independence is really reinforced by our culture in America. Right. Um, but once I got into graduate school, I discovered the impact of connecting with and working with others. And that really carried over to my first corporate job and, uh, you know, of course, everything since. So yeah, that would have to be it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Yeah, I love that proverb. It's such a clear explanation of uh, uh, what people do. And in Africa, I've done some work there. They actually go by that. Actually oh, have, cool. Oh, yeah, I'd love to go. That's on my bucket list. I have not been to Africa. Oh, it's fantastic. It's just an amazing experience. I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll do it. Great. So the second rapid round question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Uh, I've consistently made time for my personal wellness. Mm. And I think that has contributed to my impact because that's the source of my energy and the resilience (laughs) you often need uh, as a leader Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, have success and impact. And so um, I, I, I do regular exercise. I both aerobics and weight training. I've uh, I get seven to eight hours of sleep a night. I try to eat healthy foods Mm -hmm. and I stay hydrated Um, I've also been committed to being aware of and controlling my emotions and the emotions of others. Mm. Um, I've tried to maintain close relationships that bring me fulfillment. And I do a Sudoku puzzle every morning and I read (laughs) every night as food for my brain. And I also uh, commit uh, commit to spending time uh, to which to uh, witness nature's beauty, um, mm. which I find is is fuel for my soul. So that definitely, yeah. I've consistently done that for as long as I can remember. Oh, that's great! I love that you make that an important element of your day, and that you you think that's such a valuable aspect because that's the kind of thing that can get left behind when you get busy and uh, just kind of overwhelmed with work. So thank you for highlighting that. Well, the last rapid round question is what's one piece of advice or an insight you'd share with somebody who's asking, how can I more positively uh, influence things? How can I have a bigger impact? What would you say to them? You know, we talked about this a little bit, uh, Ursula, already about how important it is to tap into your purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that can be a hard thing, you know, to uh, find. It, it takes some time. Um, but I, I heard a keynote by Marcus Buckingham. Mm-hmm. 
And he talked about this exercise. I think it's pretty simple, but I think it's really powerful. And he called it the loved it or loathed it exercise, which I love because it's easy to remember. (laughs) And the idea is to keep notes uh, during your workday and make note of the things you loved and the things you loathed. And you do this, you know, every day for several weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you can go back and look for themes and the things that you loved. And this is a, a this is a way to help you to discover your passion and and your talents that hopefully can help point you to your purpose. And of course, that is a great way to to ramp up your impact and contribution. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll uh, locate that and put it in the show notes if we can find it. So um, sounds like a great resource. I, I love that tapping into your purpose, uh, being uh, something that you're really bringing out uh, and included in the book as well, because that's, uh, I think, really crucially important. And we we uh, don't talk about it enough in terms of how do you develop that and how do you um, use that as your focus. So thanks for highlighting that. Yeah, there's also a video, uh, Celebrate What's Right with the World mm-hmm. by a National Geographic um, photographer. Ah. His name is escaping me right now. But um, yeah, he talks about the importance of purpose uh, to his work. And uh, that that is that became his his purpose to celebrate what's right with the world with his photography. And he found that once he was able to articulate that purpose, it really ramped up the quality of his work. Ah, I love that. That's great. Well, Valerie, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation and and team uh, evolution and development is so crucially important in all kinds of companies, including entrepreneurial ones. And I think that is a skill that a lot of entrepreneurs um, continue to work on and develop. And so uh, your work is, is really valuable in helping bring teams along. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today. I appreciate that so much, Ursula. Thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, they can find me on Twitter at Fulcrum Connect or my website, www.fulcrumconnection.com. I'm also on LinkedIn at Valerie Patrick. Okay, great. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Valerie, and thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Ursula. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you for having me and taking the time to do this interview.